Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we're going to look at the coronavirus, its relationship to SARS and MERS, and how scientists are working on it right now. Now, coronavirus is a large family of viruses, not just the one that we have right now, and researchers have been trying to tackle this for a long time. We're going to find out about stories about researchers working on SARS, the MERS virus, as well as current efforts to try and tackle and deal with coronaviruses, and what this means for virologists, global health practitioners. Right now, the hottest topic on anyone's mind from across the world, from the scientific to a general populace, is of course coronavirus. Now, we've covered several epidemics of different sorts on this podcast before, whether it be infectious diseases and the Ebola outbreaks or other kinds of diseases like malaria, the flu, swine flu, or other conditions that have come across the world in epidemic-like conditions. We're now starting to get a better handle for how we talk about and understand diseases. Now, it's important to note first that we're going to try and stick here to published and scientific fact, which Although it is an emerging and evolving epidemic, there can actually say a lot of things with quite certainty about this. And it's also something that we need to keep perspective on. Now, many people die from the flu each year, and it's one of the reasons why the flu has such strong efforts by countries and health organizations to have a vaccine for. And with the flu, as you may know, as we've talked about before, there's no universal vaccine because the flu itself is evolving and changing over time. So the scientists get together at a certain point of the year and make a best guess for what they think may evolve in the conditions for this year, and they develop a vaccine to target one or more of those strains, the strains that they think will be the most common around the world. And they actually do this in different seasons. So the Southern Hemisphere will do one at one point, the Northern Hemisphere will do one at the other. So that you know one off-season sort of prepares for the other countries on-season. And this gets to an important point that a lot of of these conditions are actually evolving all the time. And that makes it really hard for people to control, predict and understand. But it means that once something does get out there, we can start to get onto it and understand better ways to tackle it or treat it. That's just a starting point for our discussion. So let's start with some really basic things now about coronavirus, because it's actually a family of viruses, a huge family of viruses. It could be everything from the common cold all the way up to something far more serious like severe acute respiratory syndrome, otherwise known as SARS, which you may remember from 2002, 2003, and Middle East repository syndrome, MERS, which emerged in 2012. So the coronavirus family is a large group of viruses. And the one we're talking about now, the 2019 novel coronavirus, or the Wuhan coronavirus, originating first in the Hubei province of China, which capital city is Wuhan. And most people have been studying this one because of the rapid way it has sort of spread over the last coming months. Now, this whole family of viruses can cause mild illness in people like the common cold, or it can be a bit more severe. Most people will have a fever, coughing, shortness of breath. Now, in some severe cases, you can get an infection which in your throat and lungs, which can lead to pneumonia, which of course can make you quite ill. Now, most likely symptoms are around for two to 14 days, and it can take time 
people estimate between up to 14 days in total while you're asymptomatic. That means not showing any signs of the condition. But in terms of a condition, it's not as bad per se as a flu, but it's more the complications that it can lead to. Mostly because you can get quite sick, you can get like very run down, have a fever, coughing and spluttering, which can lead to developing chest infection, lung infection, and of course pneumonia. And those conditions are serious. So it's not so much the virus itself that gets you, but more what happens once your body is run down. That's why it's particularly dangerous for people who are weak immune systems or other health conditions, because it means they're already more likely for infection. Again, it's not the virus itself that gets you. It's more what happens to your body once you have that virus and the subsequent conditions it can develop, like infections and pneumonia. So this is not some super plague that once it touches and gets one drop on you, you die. It's more about understanding the complicated interactions of your body and how it fights off things like colds and the conditions that they can lead to. Now, how does coronavirus spread? Well, it can travel from person to person, but it's very difficult for it to actually get contracted from one person to another. By that, I mean you have to be in contact with another person's bodily fluids and basically either ingest them, breathe them in, have them in your mouth or so on in order to transfer the virus. And even then, it's not guaranteed. You may have heard thrown around this R number, this R naught number, which is basically some measure of how many other people a person carrying a virus may infect. And the broad range of estimates for this is one for every one person with the virus. It's expected to be somewhere between two to up to higher estimates, 3.2 people. And that number is changing, of course, as we get a better understanding and diagnostic tests for it. That doesn't mean that for every one person with coronavirus, there will be three other people infected. It just means that in a natural base state condition, that is how many other people would likely be infected. Now, generally, scientists like to talk about a background number. And if you sort of get below one, if you don't affect another one person, or one person or less, it sort of means the virus can be sort of died off for the season. And that's one of the really important things here, because when we talk about this type of virus, in and of itself, it's not bad, but it is very infectious. It means it gets and spreads very quickly. And that's the part that's dangerous. It's not so much people worried about the actual symptoms of the condition straight away, but more that many people can catch it and it can spread quite quickly. And for this, we're going to talk a little bit about a comparison to SARS from all the way back in 2002-2003. Because it's important to understand the historical context and what we know about that condition and how it is different to the current state with coronavirus and why the response is the way it is. Now, SARS, which first emerged around November 2002, was a very viral type of condition. Again, it's from the same family as coronaviruses, but the actual impact of SARS was much more severe, as it stated in the name of it, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And people who caught SARS often developed a fever, and they started to cough and have severe breathing difficulties. It lasted again for around a week, and people suffered from headaches, chills, fevers, muffle aches, 
poor appetite, dizziness, sore throats, all the types of things you can get with an infection or a virus like this. But the problem is that about 20% of people sort of develop this severe pneumonia as a result of it. And that is why there was a very high death rate for SARS, mostly because while SARS infected a large number of people, it then led to severe breathing difficulties, infections like pneumonia, and had around a 10% death rate. Now, the important part about those 774 deaths is that they occurred over a nine-month period that the SARS outbreak occurred. By comparison, the Wuhan coronavirus has had over 6,200 cases between December 8th and January 29th, and around 132 deaths, so a 2% death rate. But that's over a very short period of time, just under two months. To think about it another way, estimating and projecting forward to a comparable length of the SARS outbreak, you could say that more people would be infected with coronavirus, but obviously less fatalities, which is a good thing. But the virality of the coronavirus is what made it so alarming. Now, the world learnt a lot after the SARS outbreak. And one of the interesting things about the rapid increase in how far it's spreading is important to understand. Because in 2003, as a good example of this, the number of outbound tourists from China, according to the Chinese government, increased from 16.6 million trips in 2003 to 150 million trips in 2018. So that's a large order of magnitude increase in the number of people travelling out of China. Now, in the SARS outbreak, a major hub for it was, of course, Hong Kong, mainly because it was a concentrated area and there was a lot of travelers going through it. This led to, of course, the disease spreading pretty rapidly out from Hong Kong out to the rest of the world. That's when countries started developing airport screening techniques. Camera-based thermometers able to find people who may be suffering or carrying a fever. Now, that's one aspect of international travel, but domestic travel has also changed inside China as well. The rapid high-speed rail network in China has really broken down a lot of barriers and enabled people to travel from the Hubei province or and the capital city of Wuhan to other places nearby or far away pretty rapidly, which is exactly what people were doing in the build-up to the Lunar New Year season. Now, that large change in the world, this mass globalization, even in a country like China, or not even globalization, just improved transit amongst the country, is what made people so worried about the Wuhan coronavirus. Because if it was spreading so rapidly, comparable in spread for SARS over a shortened period of time, a lot of that's aided by the way in which travel was occurring. And that's one of the reasons why the Chinese national government really clamped down on travel itself to try and limit the spread of what was already a pretty viral disease. Now, another thing that happened during the SARS outbreak is that the Chinese government tried to keep a wrap, so to speak, on what was going on. Now, people were aware of the disease pretty early on, but it wasn't until late February where people actually started to report on it, already after five people had died, another 300 had fallen in, and it took another five months for the genome to actually be sequenced. Now, by comparison, we have sequencing of the genome now being undertaken by lots of different institutes, including researchers in Australia, happening, you know, weeks after the outbreak occurring. And that's a pretty rapid turnaround by comparison. So you have to applaud the Chinese government for learning the lessons of SARS and the global scientific community for really working together on this. And as it may not be as deadly as SARS, this is a good, so to speak, test of the systems in place. Now, one of the big thing that public health authorities are trying to struggle with is there's sort of three pathways that this infection could go down. One is that cap is sort of put on the numbers and that's what the travel bans are trying to do trying to limit how far the disease may spread less people infected 
means that it has less chances for the disease to mutate, evolve and change. And that's quite important because while it may not be that deadly now, it is still from the same family as SARS and MERS, which are much, much worse. So we don't want the current strain to evolve into a point where it becomes you know, much more dangerous. That's important. So putting a cap on number of infections would be great. So if we could sort of put a cap at around maybe 10,000 over a three-month period, that would be pretty good. Hopefully with the contamination and containment methods in place, it would mean that uh, we would stop the infection from spreading much more. That's best case. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is if the disease isn't stamped out, but not many people die, the problem is it could become a recurring endemic issue. Much in the same way that flu comes back with different strains each season, we could see the same thing happen with coronavirus. And if that occurs, well, it makes each season we may get a slightly more powerful or different version of the coronavirus spreading out and infecting other people. And that would be quite a big issue for public health globally. Now, that's the worst case scenario. Where we'll end is probably somewhere in between those two, but that's what public health authorities are working quite actively to try and avoid. That being said, it's important to note that even in the worst case scenario, this endemic background coronavirus that fades and comes and goes with the seasons like the flu, that can still be managed. It's not going to cause the end of the world. It's just it increases the risk of a strain occurring that is more dangerous than the current strain. By comparison, you need to remember that many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die of, from the flu viruses in its various forms each year, or other diseases like measles. But public health authorities can work together to stop that, either through targeted vaccination campaigns, which is what we do for flu and, say, the measles, but also other different techniques. Just general health and hygiene can help keep people safe and avoid mass panic. That doesn't mean we need to shut down all cities. And now we're going to turn to looking at how scientists are already studying publishing papers and sharing their research on the new strain of coronavirus and learning lessons from diseases like SARS. Now, Fang Li of the University of Minnesota and others have been working on a decade-long structural study investigating the coronavirus family. Now, this has a lot of obvious key importance now, but they sort of brought forward the publishing of this research because of obviously the incredible importance. It's been published by the American Society for Microbiology in the Journal of Virology in the January edition. Obviously, pretty timely. Now, what they've been looking at is are trying to identify specific genes from the multiple types of SARS coronavirus strains. Again, remember that SARS is part of the coronavirus family, as is MERS as well as the Wuhan coronavirus, or the novel coronavirus as it's called. Now, what they've been doing over a long period of time is finding these strains in the wild or isolated from different hosts over different years and tracking them. In particular, they've been looking at a certain enzyme, the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2. Now, this particular receptor from different animal species can be used as a kind of a model for predictions for coronaviruses, which would include the novel Wuhan coronaviruses. The reason is that both viruses, because they're from the same family, they all use the ACE2 enzyme to sort of gain entry into the cells. But it also serves normally as the regulator for heart function. 
So using this particular enzyme, it's quite amazing that they can actually use it to predict that obviously since Wuhan novel coronavirus is part of the same family as the SARS one, they can use it to obviously track and say, yep, we expect this enzyme, this ACE2 to be present. But it also tells the investigators a lot of other things because this also helps people understand how human to human transmissions may occur. Because if there's a single mutation at a certain spot in a genome related to this, it would enhance the Wuhan coronavirus. There's already virus in the coronavirus family ability to bind with human ACE2. This is important because if you start to see more of this human to human transmission or animal to human transmission, these two jumping steps are when we start getting particularly worried about viruses. And the researchers are suggesting that this is one that would obviously help explain some of the virality seen by the novel coronavirus strain in Wuhan coronavirus. Mostly because this helps it spread, I guess, faster. So by understanding this particular genome and enzyme that's related as a result of it, scientists can now track and monitor the different strains and the current strain of the novel Wuhan coronavirus to see if it grows and changes. If they start seeing changes in this particular area, well, it might mean more or less virality. That is important because now that we have the novel coronavirus out there, scientists are going to be monitoring it and tracking it over time. Like we spoke about earlier, we don't want it to become like the flu, a seasonal endemic thing. So this is some of the current research that is building on decades of research into the coronavirus family. Published in the American Society for Microbiology's Journal of Virology, led by Yuxin Van, Zhang Xing, Rachel Graham, Ralph Sparrick, and Fang Li from the University of Minnesota. Now we've talked about other diseases in the coronavirus family, like the MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Now MERS is in the same family as the coronavirus, but far more deadly. It's been around since 2012, and there are roughly 2,500 cases reported to the World Health Organization across almost 30 countries. But the problem with MERS is that it is very deadly. It's got a roughly one-third death rate. So compared to SARS or even coronaviruses, we're talking huge leagues of differences here, an order of magnitude different. That's important to note. But they are from the same family, so we can learn a lot from this and ways to treat it. That's exactly what researchers, including Dr. Marcel Müller of the Institute of Virology at the Charity University of Medicine in Berlin, and they've recently published this in the journal Nature Communications. Now, this team of researchers were looking at a way to help stop the spread of MERS, because MERS can cause a flu-like illness, much the same way as coronaviruses or SARS, and often leads to a pretty severe associated phenomena. And that's actually what's the deadly part of it, the severe infection leading to pneumonia. Now, what they've discovered is a certain way to try and trigger the off switch inside the MERS virus, or at least rather try to get it to spread less virally, and thus limiting the amount of people that are infected by it. And they do this by basically turning on the recycling functions of a cell using special treatment. And that's pretty great because there aren't actually actually many treatments to stop MERS at the moment. Now, this all hinges on the process, the cellular process called autophagy. And this is the, if you want to think about it another way, the cellular recycling process that enables cells to dispose of damaged materials and waste and keep the stuff that's still working and incorporate it into new cellular structures. 
So autophagy is like a cellular reconstruction technique, and it's quite important for healthy cells. It's also important because it helps stop and identify virus components. If your cell's recycling plant sees some virus components coming into it, it goes, well, hang on a second, that's not right, that's waste, and gets rid of it. So of course, most viruses like to disable this recycling plant so that they don't get thrown out with the garbage. And that makes sense if you're a virus, but it's not good news for you, the patient. So what these researchers, including Dr. Muller, were looking at was trying to find a way to turn that process back on. And they were doing this by finding the specific protein, the SKP2, which regulates the process of autophagic degradation. And they tried to see how the MERS virus activates and deactivates this molecular switch and thus build a counter strategy. So where MERS tries to turn it off, they actually turn up the dial and make this recycling plant go into overdrive when MERS wants it to turn off. And this is actually pretty amazing as a strategy because it reduced the replication rate of the MERS virus by a factor of 28,000. So basically really turned it right down. The MERS virus wasn't able to spread and thus wasn't able to get outside of the person, but it wasn't able to spread inside the culture as well. And that's pretty important because it means that your immune system has a chance of stopping it. So whilst it doesn't remove or destroy MERS, it kind of stops its dead in its, dead in its tracks and makes it very difficult for it to propagate. And, and that's a pretty novel way of tackling a disease. So this is some great research published in Nature Communications that again is very timely because this treatment could be pretty effective against other viruses in the coronavirus family, such as SARS or the novel coronavirus, the Wuhan coronavirus. And so this is some great and timely research, including lead authors Niels Gassen and Daniela Neimer, along with a large research team under the direction of Dr. Müller, the Charity University of Medicine in Berlin. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From MERS to SARS all the way to the coronavirus. This week we looked at the way public health experts are trying to research and improve treatments to stop these viruses in its tracks. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.